Welcome to episode 3 of Ponderland. It's Monday the 29th of May 2023. Today I'm going to ponder lacewebbed spiders, macrophagy, the first person who thought it was a good idea to milk a cow, and magic carpets. Get yourself a coffee or your preferred beverage and enjoy the show. After what feels like a hundred days of intense rain and miserable grey skies, when I look out the window now, all I see is glorious sunshine. So a couple of days ago, procrastination came to an end. I knew I needed to go out and start tidying up the back garden. First thing I had to do was take care of the weeds in the patio. There are some boxes that have been stacked up against the wall now for quite some time. So I moved those in order to see if the floor beneath them, the concrete needed cleaned. Sure enough, it did. But as I moved the boxes, all manner of spiders started to scatter their secluded, peaceful existence disturbed by the moving of these boxes. Some of them were huge. For this country anyway. Not as big as what you might find elsewhere in the world. Some of them were quite small. One spider caught my eye as it was lodged in between the little crevice in the red brick wall. And the reason why it caught my eye is because it was just nestled really, really comfortably within that crevice. And beside it was what looked to me like a clump or a cluster of eggs. So what I do when I see an interesting spider is I take a picture of it and I go to Twitter and I post to the authority on spiders, the authority as far as I and many others on the internet are concerned, British spiders. On Twitter, they are at British spiders and their name is just BAS, which stands for the British Arachnological Society by the looks of their profile picture. So my tweet to British spiders was simply, what do we have here? British spiders replied later that day to say, we have a lovely lace web spider. Amorobius similis or fenestralis with her brood of eggs. It's a great picture. Thank you, British spiders, for the compliment of my picture. There's info on these species in our fact sheet 13 and they sent me the link. So I opened the link and I went straight to fact sheet 13. And truly the lacewebb spider is really fascinating. But here's where it gets really interesting in relation to that clump or cluster of eggs. It says here in their fact sheet that 
Most Simulus and Fenestralis males are mature in late summer, autumn, whereas mature females are found throughout the year with spring and autumn peaks. Similus egg sacs are typically produced in June and July, the parents having mated the previous autumn. The mother guards the egg sac for about a month before the young emerge. Some amazing behaviour follows. After two or three days, the female begins to cover her young with a fine layer of silk and they become very active, eventually moving under her abdomen like piglets around teats. Indeed, they are being fed, but not on milk. The female produces special trophic food eggs, which are avidly consumed by the young and help them progress towards their second molt some five days later. The mother then taps and pulls the silk, activating her previously quiet offspring, which swarm all over her, biting wherever they can. Eventually, she is overwhelmed and eaten, a process called matrophagy or phagy. Matrophagy literally means mother eating. These well-fed young disperse some 14 days later, larger and in a much better nutritional state as a result of their mother's provisioning and ultimate sacrifice. Vice. Sacrifice. Blah. That is bonkers, isn't it? Giving birth to, and the picture on the fact sheet shows the little spiders underneath the mother's abdomen, and it looks as though there's like at least 50 of them. Now, I'm feeling a bit guilty because I don't think I should have moved that box. Or maybe if only my procrastination had lasted a little longer, the box would have stayed in place. Because I didn't put the box back again. Not certainly back to where it had been. And every day I've gone out since, that spider has no, is nowhere to be seen. The eggs are still there, but the spider isn't. And I'm wondering, have I stupidly exposed that spider to a predator could even have been my dog my cocker spaniel who has eaten spiders in the past but that day when i moved the box he was around there sniffing away and he he never he never touched the spider certainly not that day anyway and he was running around sniffing around everywhere where i'd moved things but as i say this this is the third day the eggs are still there no sign of the spider. Unless the spider has gone and hidden somewhere now more secluded and keeps coming back to check on the eggs at night time. I don't know. But I find that fascinating. Even though I now feel a little bit guilty that I might have deprived 50 little spiders of a mother to eat. On that note, I'll take a break. Picture this, it's 10,000 years ago, somewhere in Britain or Northern Western Europe, 
We've moved from hunter-gatherers to settlers to farmers. As of yet, there is no such thing as a dairy farmer and we don't as a people consume cow's milk. So where does that come from? Who thought it was a good idea? Because let's face it, the milk that's being produced by the cow is specifically designed for that cow's offspring. I mean, it's actually tailor-made for that cow's offspring. So what I can't get my head around is why a human or a group of humans one day decided, do you know what, Trevor, Trevor, hi, let's milk that cow and see what it tastes like. Would that even have been the lexicon? Would that even have been the thing to say, let's milk that cow? Maybe it was kids messing around. I want to see what that tastes like. I want to know the equivalent of what does that button do? Don't press it. I'm going to press it. Don't press it. I'm going to press it. I just can't get my head around it. Because today, if we hadn't taken that step as yet, and you read about that in the newspaper that some clown had decided to drink the milk from a cow, not only that, he had actually went and squeezed the others himself just to get the milk out. I think you'd be dealing with somebody who people would at best have thought wasn't too clever and at worst would have thought was a danger to society. It's an interesting one to think about and it's one of those ones that if you had the time machine wouldn't it be interesting to go back and witness that first exchange? And apologies to anybody out there called Trevor. I just took that name. I'd say I, I think that the, the person involved here was called Trevor. And not because Trevors are inherently strange or misguided. It's just the name I've decided to go with. So Trevor, the dairy industry at large, thanks you. But some of us are still just a little bit curious as to what it was that was going through your cabbage. It's a long time since I can even recall seeing a magic or flying carpet in any pop culture. Nothing recently has brought flying or magic carpets to my attention, so I have no real clue as to why I've been thinking about them. I suspect I was getting so 
bored with the headline news being all about two television presenters on a UK daytime morning news current. It's not even a news program. Some entertainment program. And it seems to be mired in controversy at the minute because of Holly and Phil. And I couldn't give a damn about Holly and Phil. And somehow magic carpets flew into my mind and got me thinking. Where did the idea or the concept of a flying magic carpet come from? I investigated. Now, before I go into the details of my far from thorough investigation, here are my thoughts on magic carpets. One, I think they'd be extremely uncomfortable. Carpets aren't very thick typically and sitting on a carpet can be comfortable as long as that carpet is nailed to a floor. But to actually sit on a carpet as it lifts off into the sky, I can't imagine that feeling comfortable. I like to have a seat, a nice comfortable seat underneath my posterior when I'm flying. And let's face it, we get as comfortable as is possible. I'm sure there are much more comfortable seats on airplanes that I've ever flown on. But anyway, that's not the point. Magic carpets would be uncomfortable. They wouldn't handle turbulence well, I can't imagine, unless they have some magical property that helps them navigate the turbulence. And they're exposed to the elements. I don't want to go flying on a carpet in the rain or when it's cold. And there's nothing to hold on to, not even a heated seat. Sorry, steering wheel. There's no steering wheel. How do you even navigate a carpet? How do you even, you know, is it just, is it, is it like Avatar where it somehow tunes into your mind without the stem thingy that you plug into the back of your tail head, whatever it is. So yeah, I have a lot of negative thoughts around magic carpets in terms of their functionality and their practicality of use. But when I investigated the origins of magic carpets, it is a lot more interesting. And they actually did not begin as flying carpets. They were carpets that had a unique dye. And it was the dye that had the magical properties and it was the dye in the carpet that gave it the ability to transport people who were on the carpet to another place, to another physical place, I believe. As I say, my research wasn't exhaustive. It was cursory, to be 
honest. But I think that I am much more on board with a carpet, with a cool magical dye that can transport me. I assume the carpet came with the user on the transportation process. It's a bit like the holodeck. This is the way they used to do it before the next generation, or even Star Trek, the original series. Holodeck? Holodeck? You know I meant transporter, right? If anyone happens to have one of these magical transportation carpets, I'd love to take one for a spin, so please get in touch. That being said, I think it's fairly safe to say that had these carpets ever existed, I doubt they do anymore. Hope you enjoyed the show. Please tune in for the next one. See ya. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Ponderland. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. To contact the show, you can send us an email. Hello at ponderland.life You can also follow us on Twitter at Ponderland Life. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and most other places where you consume your podcasts. Thank you.